Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. There is none besides thee, O Lord. Which makes the fact that we get to sit here even more amazing. Because you are perfect and good and right. And we are sinful people. Thank you for Jesus who covers us. Covers us with his blood. Making us right. Making it possible for you to hear our prayers. To hear our praises. To hear the songs that we sing. And you take pleasure and delight in them. Father, we thank you for your mercy. For your mercy. For your mercies were new yesterday. They were new this morning. And they will again be new tomorrow morning. Thank you, Father. We pray for our time this morning as we go into the word. We need your help, as always, to open up our eyes, to open up our minds, to open up our hearts so that we might see Christ. We ask you to help us this morning. Help me, O Lord, communicate your word faithfully without error so that you might be honored and be glorified. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Bible is uh, full, full of sinful people and sinful situation. I mean, it just seems like there's just sin on every single page. And it's been, we've been reminded of that as we've gone through the book of Judges. I mean, it just seems to be sin after sin and People of Israel do what's evil in the sight of the Lord and are sinful. But yet, we know that the Bible proclaims God's sovereignty, that he's in control of all things, that he ordains all things. We know that the, that the theme, that the ultimate theme running through the Bible some people would say that the ultimate theme is that God is love. But on further examination, if you were to look at the Bible, you would see that the main theme running through everything is the glory of God in all things, throughout all pages of Scripture. And so the question remains, well, if the Bible is full of sinful people and sinful situations... And God is sovereign over all things and ordains all things. And that this book is about his glory. Then how in the world does that all work out? It's the issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 
It's the question. It's the, it's the tension that we in our finite minds just seem to wrestle with and can't really reconcile. Well, in the Bible, as Spurgeon has said, they are friends. There's no need reconciling friends. This example is um, no more clear than in the life of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob, began having dreams. He began having dreams that his brothers would one day bow down to him. And he began to tell his brothers these dreams. And as you can imagine, they were not too thrilled about these dreams and desired to kill Joseph. Well, before they could kill Joseph, um, Joseph's brother had a different plan. And they were able to sell, they sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Joseph lands in Egypt, and after being put in prison because of some um, details that, you know, he was innocent, but he was thrown in prison, um, he again gains favor in the sight of Pharaoh because he is able to interpret his dreams. And Joseph gains favor in the sight of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh um, exalts him to a high position. And later on, um, Pharaoh's, I mean, uh, Joseph's brothers are experiencing a famine, and they need food. And so they go to Egypt to find food. And as they come up to Joseph, Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize Joseph. Well, Joseph takes care of his brothers and he uh, um, provides for their needs, providing them food. And, and it's a wonderful story of a reunion between Joseph and his, and his father, Jacob. Well, Jacob eventually passes away. And Joseph's brothers are nervous once Jacob passes away because they think Joseph is going to retaliate against them. Now, here is this shot for Joseph to get back at his brothers for selling them into slavery. And then in Genesis 50 and verse 20, Joseph says this to his brothers after Jacob has passed away and after Joseph's brothers are fearful of their lives and what Joseph is going to do to them. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. What they, what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, meant for evil, God meant, meant for good. Oh, we see this in the tale of Samson this morning. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been detailing the chronicles of Samson, who we said is among uh, one of the more popular judges in Israel's history. In the first week, we learned that Samson was not going to be an ordinary judge. He was not going to be an ordinary judge. He was going to begin to save Israel. That's what the angel of the Lord told Manoah and his wife, that their son, Samson, was going to begin to save Israel 
from their wicked oppressors, and he was going to save them from the Philistines. And last week, we, uh, a couple of weeks, in the first week when we talked about um, Samson, we found out that he was born by the Spirit. And last week in chapter 14, that despite that... Um, in chapter 14, that the, the calling of Samson's life, and despite being filled by the Spirit and conceived and led by the Spirit, that Samson also grieved the Spirit. Samson had, uh, had indwelling sin in his heart. And unfortunately, that began to manifest itself in his relationships, not only with his wife, with his parents, and ultimately with the Philistines. And so now we come to chapter 15 this morning. We are about halfway through the Chronicles of Samson. And if you are anything like me, you are beginning to wonder, when is Samson going to begin to save Israel? When is he going to begin to save Israel? When would the time come? It would seem that this chapter as Lee has read for us this morning, continues to detail more of the same of Samson's wild and sinful actions, which led to the anger and which leads to anger and the slaughter of large numbers of people. When, Samson? When? When? That is the question. When? Perhaps the people of Judah were wondering the same thing. It is safe to assume that the people of Judah knew that Samson was supposed to save them because I'm sure Manoah and his wife told them that their son, their son that they had given birth to was going to save Israel. He was going to be the one that was going to deliver them from the Philistines. So when, Samson, when are you going to fulfill this calling? But as you read these accounts, you cannot help but come to the conclusion that Samson seems to be only interested in himself. He's not even thinking about the people of Israel. He is, he is selfish. As Pastor Tony said last week, he is a spoiled brat. When he, last week in chapter 14, when he is not interested in listening to his parents and goes down and takes the Philistine woman for his wife, he is showing that he is selfish. No regard for his parents. No regard for the word of God. And when he breaks the the Nazarite vow by touching an unclean animal because he is hungry, as we enter chapter 15, we see more of the same in Samson. Self, a selfish man who was concerned only about himself. So we pick it up in chapter 15, a few days after Samson, the end of chapter 14, kills 30 men in anger. And he is at his father's house, and it seems as though his anger has subsided and he is ready to go back to his bride, whom he left at the end of chapter 14. But when he gets to his father-in-law's house, his father-in-law does not want him to come into the chamber. 
And he tells him that he gave his wife to his best man. Now the father knew what he did was wrong. And the reason he knew what he did was wrong is because even though Samson left in anger and he was probably not the best man for his daughter to marry, father-in-law knew what he did was wrong. He had no right, no right to give Samson's wife to another man. And he knew he was wrong because he tries to offer his, his, his other daughter to appease Samson, fearful of what he might do. Well, um, Samson is offended. He's offended that his wife was given to his best man, and he decides to, that he is going to take out his anger on the Philistines. And so what he does is he gathers 300 foxes, 300 foxes, and takes them by peers and takes a torch and ties their tails together, ties a torch in between their tails and sets them loose among the Philistines' standing grain, destroying it destroying their sacks of grain, basically wiping out their entire food supply. This would have have been devastating, devastating to the Philistines. Their food supplies up in smoke. Now, some people, none of you, of course, nobody here, some people would say, serves them right. Serves them right. He should have never given his, Samson's wife to another man. And besides, these are the people that are oppressing the people of God. They had it coming to them. This, this was righteous indignation. Here's the problem. Samson was not angry because God was offended. Samson was angry because he was offended. He was offended. He takes revenge on the Philistines because he was sinned against, not because God was sinned against. Oh, I fear that the sin of anger is more rampant in our lives than we care to admit. And not only is it rampant, but far worse, we think our anger is justified. Because we have been sinned against or because we have been offended. Look at what verse 3 says. Look at what Samson says. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. In chapter 14, when I killed those 30 men, I wasn't innocent. But this time, because I have been offended, because I have been sinned against, I am going to be innocent in doing the Philistines harm this time. He is justifying his anger because he believes he is innocent in the matter and that he has every right to avenge himself. I think, I think more than any other sin that we commit, more than any other sin that we commit, 
I think we justify our anger the most. Out of every sin that we commit, we justify our anger the most. We think that because someone has sinned against us, we have every right to retaliate or to let our anger boil and fester in our hearts. And we're okay with it because they sinned against me. They offended me. A couple of illustrations. You make, you make a mistake, an honest mistake at work. And a coworker throws you under the bus by copying every manager and every other person in your department. You just made an honest mistake. They want to get you in trouble. Anger. You're driving nicely along the road, obeying all the laws, driving along real nice. I mean, and then all of a sudden someone cuts you off. They don't even think twice about it. They don't give you that hand of, you know, I'm sorry, sorry. Anger. You're on an airplane or a bus or a train, and all you want to do is just read the Bible. Have your quiet time, your devotions. And the person in front of you decides that they want to let the whole world in on their cell phone conversation. Anger. The children won't sit still during dinner and won't listen the first time, the first time you tell them to do something. Anger. You're having a conversation, kind of a heated, perhaps, conversation, not an argument, just a heated conversation with your spouse, and comment slips out that you know they said because they just wanted to push your button. Oh, anger. The littlest littlest things cause anger to boil up in our hearts. And worse than that, we begin to justify that anger because we think that we have every right to get angry at their sin. I am angry. Innocent this time. My sin before, when I got angry with them before, I, didn't, I, I, I wasn't innocent. But this time, I'm innocent because they have offended me. We are not angry because it is an offense to God. But we are angry because it is an offense to us. This shows two holes in our thinking. One, it shows that we have a misunderstanding of how much our sin has offended God. None of us, none of you, none of us, no one is innocent. None. We were born in sin and iniquity. And therefore, any sin, any sin that is committed is a sin against God, any sin. God is offended. David knew this, didn't he? David knew this. When when he sins with Bathsheba and he is confronted by the prophet Nathan, what did he say? I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. David knew that he had sinned against the Lord. When somebody sins against you, when you are offended, 
remember how much your sin has offended God. That person has not offended you more than you have offended God. Get angry? Get angry at your own sin. Be violent and fight against your own sin. That, that is righteous indignation. That is getting angry and sinning not. Sin, get angry at your own sin. The second hole in that thinking is not realizing God will return justice on the ungodly. God will return justice on the ungodly. Brothers and sisters, remember that God brings justice against sin. He does. He is a just God who hates sin and loves righteousness, and therefore he has to punish sin. He will avenge his name. It is he who fights his battles. And it is displayed here in our text this morning. The retaliation of the Philistines on Samson's wife and father-in-law. Look at, look at, verse, look at verse 6. After Samson releases the foxes on the grain of the Philistines, Philistines get, up, get upset and they don't go after Samson. In verse 6 it says, Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Temite. Because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Did you see the, you see the providence? Did you, do you remember back in chapter 14? Do you see the providence of God there? In chapter 14, Samson's wife is, um, is fearful of being burned by the Philistines if she doesn't seduce her husband to tell them the riddle, right? That's what happens in, verse, in, in, in chapter 14. She falls and succumbs to the same fate that she was fearful of in chapter 14. God is not mocked, beloved. He says, vengeance is mine in Deuteronomy 32. And Paul, quoting Deuteronomy in Romans 12 and 19, says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. He brings about justice. So when somebody somebody comes and sins against you, right, or offends you, it will happen, I guarantee you. When somebody sins against you or you are offended, remember that, that one, that that sin is against God. And so is yours. And so is your sin. It has offended a holy and a just and a right God. Two, remember that God will punish and deal with every sin. Everyone, he will deal with and punish every sin, either in eternal damnation for the wicked, or he will deal with that sin, the cross in Christ. He deals with all sin, 
he punishes it all. Remember that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The story, the story continues. And after, after Samson's wife and father-in-law are killed, Samson once again burns with hot anger. And he, I mean, he takes it out again on the Philistines. But then he goes into hiding because the Philistines are upset and they are looking for him. They're looking for him because they want to do harm, because they, they, they want to hurt him. They want to do what he has done to them. And while Samson is strategizing against his next move against the Philistines, um, the Philistines decide that they're going to come up against the people of Israel. They're going to come up and, and fight against or, or take action against the, 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 the tribe of Judah. And attack them instead of directly going um, and attacking Samson. A little fearful of Samson. I would be too. The people of Judah, once the Philistines come up against them, they're like, whoa, hey, wait a second. Why, Why are you coming up against us? What do we do to you? What's going on here? Why are you coming up against us? What have we done to you? Philistines, and the Philistines tell the people uh, what Samson has done for, to them, and they have come to take Samson, to take Samson out. Well, well, Judah doesn't want any part of it. They want no part of it. They're like, hey, wait, we don't want to deal, deal with any mess that Samson has gotten himself into. And they say, well, uh, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll take 3,000 of our men, we're going to take 3,000 of our men and we're going to go down and bind Samson and turn him over to you. We're going we're gonna to take one of our own, we're going to bind him and turn him over to you. Do you, see what's, do you see what's happening here? The people of Judah, Israel, is turning over their Appointed Savior, the one who was supposed to save them, turning him over to the people they needed saving from. Cowardly, concerned about their own safety, comfortable, rather than grabbing their swords. And saying, Samson, lead us into victory over our oppressors. They say, Samson, Samson, when they come down to bind him, don't you you know that the Philistines are ruling over us? Don't you know that they rule over us? In other words, why are you you ruffling the feathers? We're okay with how everything is, is happening here. We are comfortable with our sinful master. We're okay. Unfortunately, people of Judah's ancestors, their ancestors don't fall far from the tree. Don't their actions sound familiar? Don't their actions sound familiar? Did not Jesus come to save the people of Israel? Did he not come to them first? And what happened? They're they're cool with Jesus while he's, you know, 
performing miracles, while he's turning water into wine, while he's healing the sick. Oh, we're cool with Jesus. Then he starts ruffling feathers, turning over tables in the temple, saying things, difficult things like, you will eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. We can't, we can't have this. Ruffling feathers. And then in John, John tells us in John 11, 47 through 48, we read this, this account. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council. They gathered the council and said, what are we to do? Speaking of Jesus, what are we to do about this man? For, for this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans, who are rulers over us, will come and take away both our place and our nation. Comfortable where we are. We are comfortable with the Romans ruling over us. And this man, Jesus, is going to ruin things for us. We need to turn him over. And then later in John... 1812, we read, so the band of soldiers and their captain and their officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Before before you start saying, how could they? Before you start separating yourself from the account, brothers and sisters, don't think for a moment that you would have done any different. You would not have done any different. The songwriter asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Yes, you were there. We were all there. We were amongst the crowd before Jesus, screaming at the top of our lungs, crucify him, crucify him. How do I know that you were there? How do I know that you were there? Is because it was our sin that kept him there. You and I were amongst the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You were there, brothers and sisters. We were all there. You were amongst the crowd who turned him over. People of Judah turned him over. And in Samson's response, we see him once again pointing us to the, to the coming Savior. Pointing us to the one who would ultimately save us from all of our sins. From all of our enemies. And as Christ went willingly, when they came to arrest him, when they came, when the officials came to arrest and bound him, Christ went willingly. So goes Samson willingly into the hands of the people to be turned over to the Philistines. You know, these these series of events in the first half of um, the first half of Judges 15 leave us with with very little hope of salvation for, for Judah, for the people of Israel. I mean, Samson seems to be only concerned about himself and his anger has led to just more, more people being killed. And now, and now he's in the hands of the, of the Philistines, of his people who, who turned him over. 
the, the people who he was supposed to save turned him over. I mean, it seems like sin and misery are winning out in this story. It seems like they are winning the battle. Then we read these words in verse, verses 14 and 15. Look at verses 14 and 15. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax as, as they caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone and a don, um, jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck a thousand men. Despite, despite the sin of Samson, Despite the sin of Samson, God uses him to save the people whom whom sinned against Samson. Do you see that? Samson saves the very ones who turned him over to the Philistines. Through all, through all this sin and death and misery, God gets glory. How do we see God getting glory in the story? God again filled Samson with his spirit. It says that, the Bible says it rushed upon him. And as we learned last week, God fills his servants with the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purposes and his plans for his glory. What was the purpose? The salvation of God's people. In fact, Samson in verse 18, refers to it as a great salvation. A great salvation had been accomplished. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Despite the sin of Samson, God uses him. Despite the wicked, selfish intentions of Judah, God saves them. Why? Why does he do this? Because God's love and mercy trumps sin. And God's purposes are always, they are always, always, always accomplished. Never thwarted. God's love and mercy are overwhelming. They are overwhelming. And he displays that love and mercy in the promises that he makes and keeps. God told Manoah and his wife that Samson, their son, was going to save, begin to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. And despite the sin of Samson, despite the wicked hearts of the Israelites, despite all their sin, God keeps his promise. He keeps his promise because God loves his glory. He is jealous for it and he keeps his promises. He is patient and long-suffering and kind, bounding in, in steadfast love and mercy. No love is deeper. No love is wider. No love is truer. There is no love like his. You're not going to find it. His grace and mercy 
great. They are great. So, I mean, this, this, this begs the question. This begs the question as we read the accounts of Samson. Okay, God uses what, what, what men meant for evil, God means for good. Does this mean that I, I can just live however I want to live? And just, just go on sinning and sinning and sinning and just say, oh, God's going to use it for his glory. God's going to use it for his good. I'm just going to freely just sin. Sounds like it, doesn't it? Paul anticipates that question in Romans chapter 6. After, in Romans 5, saying things like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And by one man, death came into, sin came into the world. And so death spread to all men because all sin, all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. After going through all the the, the love and talking about the love and the mercy of God, Paul anticipates the question, well, can I go on sitting? Look at what he says in verse 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Question, question is a right question. It has been said, it has been said that if the gospel you are hearing does not cause you to ask that question, well, can I go on sinning then? If the gospel that you are hearing does not cause you to ask a question like that, then your view of grace is not large enough. You have not grasped the mind-blowing truth of the gospel. That's how great God's grace is. That's how great his mercy is. God said that. that He set his affection. He set his affections on a people before the foundations of the world. And he promised that a, that a savior, that a, a, a redeemer, a redeemer was coming to save us from our sin, from the wicked state that we found ourselves in. So he came himself in the person, Jesus Christ. And those Those same men and women whom he came to save turned him over. Those men and women that he came to save from their sin, those same men and women 
turned him over to be crucified according to the ordained plan of God. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. He keeps his promises. And he kept that one. Amen. God's love is and mercy are overwhelming. If you don't ask the question, well, then can I, can I go on sinning? Oh, delve deeper into the gospel. Delve deeper in. Isaiah 53, 10 and 12 reads, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressions. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray.